For 14 weeks, we've been looking at the book of Hebrews. And um, at the risk of repeating myself, which the author of Hebrews does frequently and will do again this morning, let me remind you that the book of Hebrews really is a sermon written to some Hebrew Christians. That's where the name the book of Hebrews comes from. And he has been pleading with them, arguing with them, making a case in terms of argument that they should never consider leaving Jesus and abandoning the Christian faith. It is all that they have. It is all that they need. And though they are feeling pressured, some of them are thinking about abandoning the Christian faith. And so this letter, this sermon letter has been written And he has been making the case that Jesus is better than everything these Hebrew Christians have known. Everything about Old Testament practice of faith, Jesus is superior to it. He has superseded it. And last week, if you were here, we caught up on this phrase of Jesus being a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Three, four times he keeps referring to this shadowy figure of Melchizedek. And now this morning, he's going to continue on this high priest language and explanation. But he's going to get to the real good, the real nugget, and he's going to do it quickly as he tells us what his main point is. Isn't it great when someone tells you what their main point is? Well, the author does that in verse 1 of chapter 8. Give your attention to the 13 verses In chapter 8 of Hebrews. Now the main point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. And so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest. For there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned... When he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one. Since the new covenant is established on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant... No place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant And I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. 
I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. Let's pray for God's help in understanding his word. Lord, would you remove the scales from our eyes? Would you unstop our ears? Would you soften our hearts that we might see, that we might behold, that we might believe what you have done for the good of your people? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're fast approaching that time of the year. Well, we see it all around us now. The festivities and the traditions associated with holidays. The colors of red, the candles, all of which remind us of things. We have a table before us this morning to remind us of things, to encourage our faith. And everything you'll hear about the candles is pointing us somewhere. And everything that the bread and the wine do are pointing us to someone. And it's that time of year that some of us practice traditions in our home. Some are silly. We'll be blowing up a Christmas tree in a matter of weeks for New Year's Eve. Look forward to sharing that uh, in some form of illustration. But I have a memory as a, as a child. I don't know how old I was. I wasn't that young. And I must have heard that somebody else did this because I didn't invent this. And I think we only did it this one time. But for New Year's, when, when the clock struck 12, we opened up the front door to let the new year in. And we opened up the back door to let the old year out. Maybe you do that. Maybe you should do that. Out with the old, in with the new, right? Well, that is a kind of paradigm shift that we live through every year. Our calendars will change. The digits change. We'll make mistakes when we write checks because we'll forget, oh, it's going to be 2023. That's a paradigm shift where, okay, everything's changed now. And maybe some of you are teaching little children this truth, that the the calendar's going to change. We're going to change the numbers. It's a paradigm shift of sorts. A paradigm is that established pattern or framework of thought, the understanding, the practice that rules the day. There's a sense in what which, that which we've just read in, in um, Hebrews chapter 8. You could call a paradigm shift. He says it all changes. Out with the old, in with the new. Alistair Begg, in his comments on this passage, says this. He says, we probably best should, should best understand this passage and the scriptures themselves as a kind of two-act play. A two-act play where you have Act 1 in the Old Testament. And Act 1 is filled with these shadows, these types, anticipation, longing, 
a lot of bloodshed, a lot of needing something more. And then comes act two, paradigm shift. And act two of that redemption, of that play, that story of redemption is fulfillment of what was anticipated, fulfillment of longing, fulfillment of promise, completion of what God had said he would do. And I think that's right, and I think that's helpful. Maybe that's helpful for you. If you're a new Christian, if the Bible is new to you, if, if it's unfamiliar to you, maybe that's helpful to understand that this is all reminding us of what was in Act 1 that has come in Act 2. And so Hebrews chapter 8, out with the old, in with the new, a paradigm shift of sorts in which all things are new, all things become better. That's what he says for us. That's part of how he tries to captivate these people's attention to not leave their faith in Jesus. So two simple points this morning. Out with the old, in with the new. So what about this old? What does the author say about the old? He says several things. He says that the old had an earthly priesthood. And we know that to be true. In verse 5, he talks about how that, that old priesthood was but a copy and shadow built upon a pattern that God had given. And it was anticipating something greater that would come. So the old was an earthly priesthood, and it was led by flawed priests. Not one priest, but priests. Now, interesting reading during the week for you, if you want to explore this. Have fun, go reading about individual priests in the Old Testament. And you will find bumbling stooges who get it wrong, who are corrupt. They are, they are failures of priests. And that creates this anticipation of, we need a better priest. We need a priest who's not corrupt. And not only are they flawed, you'll find that they are very busy. Priests were very busy. Constant need for sacrifice, for bloodshed. And so rivers of blood, you could say, spilled in the old covenant, anticipating something's got to be done there is just busy, busy work of priests and constant bloodshed. And then fourthly, all that together made for what you could argue was a failed priesthood. A priesthood that couldn't reconcile sinners to God. And the language of Scripture that we've heard already in the service is that it was a broken covenant. It was a bad marriage between God and His people. And it wasn't God's fault. It was the failure of the people, the author of Hebrews says. And that failed, broken covenant was literally worthy of divorce, where God would be right and just to divorce His people, which is what He says He has done with that wilderness generation early on in Hebrews. And so you have a failed priesthood you have flawed priests, but they're so busy having to perform sacrifices for the sins of the people. And the author of Hebrews says in verse 13, he says, all of that is obsolete. 
It's over. It's done with. It was act one. And now there's a paradigm shift. Everything changes and we move to act two. And act two is in with the new. It is the new covenant. It is the better covenant. It is superior to the old covenant in every way, the author says. How is it better? Well, here's a few things. The old covenant was an earthly priesthood. And the author says the new covenant has a heavenly priesthood. That our priest is in heaven. He has reconciled God and man. And he has access to God himself. He is God himself. And so substance and reality have taken place of what was formerly a shadow, a copy, and a type. Secondly, the way the new covenant is better, he says this priest is seated. He's a seated priest. Now, if you do read about the priesthood this week, um, go Google and search and find out, did priests have seats and chairs? No. Never instructed to sit down. They were busy performing sacrifices. But the first thing, one of the first things he says about this heavenly priest is that he's seated. Being seated is a position of rest. This priest is no longer busy in that sense of offering sacrifice. He has petitions, prayers, offerings for his people. But his sacrifice is finished. Jesus' last words on the cross. It is finished. And so in the old covenant we had busy priests, failed priests. In the new covenant we have a heavenly priest who is a seated priest. And thirdly, says he's a perfect priest. He is better and superior than every priest, every sacrifice, everything ever done in the Old Testament. He is the perfection. He has superseded all things. Now, how is it perfect? Well, it's perfect in every way. But it's especially perfect because he says it is the once and for all sacrifice... That now in the new covenant, God's law is written on the hearts, written on the minds of his people. And that God himself is the doer of what had to be done. He will do it all. He does it so that he can save the least of all. That all will truly know him and remain in him. That's how this new covenant and this priest is better. It's a once and for all sacrifice. All that bloodshed comes to an end. It's fulfilled in the one true and perfect sacrifice of Jesus. No more bloodshed. It was shed once and for all. And now God says His Spirit will work in His people. Now we understand that the way that God works, and we prayed it in our pastoral prayer, is that His Spirit would work in the hearts of men and women and children. And that's what we believe He's done since Acts chapter 2 in Pentecost. That God the Holy Spirit, He does, He engages in the life of people. He takes a heart of stone and He transforms it to a heart of flesh. God Himself does this. So what's better about this new covenant? It's that God Himself is at work. Where in the old covenant, His bride was faithless, an unfaithful bride. 
And it's as if the Lord has said, okay, I will do it all. I will do it for you. So that even the least will know me, it says in verse 11 of Hebrews 8. Even the least, well, what does that mean? Does he mean the insignificant people? Does he mean little ones, children? Does he mean the poor? Does he mean the outcast? Yes, that the least of all would know the Lord. And so that is what is so great, so beautiful, so powerful. That is the good news of this new covenant. He is preaching to these Hebrews who are thinking about abandoning their faith in Jesus. And he would say, you have got to hold fast. You have got to remain. Don't let go of Jesus. Remember what Jesus said in John 15 verse 4 to his disciples. Jesus said, abide in me, remain in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. So Jesus and the author of Hebrews, it's a call to abide, a call to remain in Jesus. You can't abandon him. You can't let go of him. That would be the worst possible decision. Richard Phillips in his commentary on this passage says this, This is a better covenant, a better salvation, better than anything we have known before. It is superior because Jesus is superior. Because His priestly work actually saves us. He doesn't give us the chance to be saved, to save ourselves, or to be saved by others. He saves us. He wins our salvation by His perfect and finished work. A work so completely finished that he declared it so and sat down. Now he applies that salvation to us with his power and authority, ruling over us and in us and for us so that his kingdom will be established. Now he awaits us in heaven, not passively with fingers crossed, hoping we make it. No, he draws us to himself by His divine power, and saves us completely, which is the language of Hebrews. He is able to completely save His people to the uttermost. What's so great about this covenant? What's new about this covenant? All of that. And it's great news. So imagine being those recipients of this letter, hearing this letter read as it was preached read to them, what would happen in those hearts? Would they soften? Would they return to the Lord? Would they say, we were just kidding, we're not leaving Jesus, you're absolutely right. What kind of response did they have? We don't know. But it's an urgent plea to consider what you have, to not turn back to where you were, to not go back to a former way of life. And when you hear all this beauty of what God has done in Christ... Does it warm your heart at all? Does it remind you that oh, we have been given a beautiful treasure of a salvation and we've thought so little of it? 
We've, made, we've, we've let the world make us to feel like, oh, we're just conservative crazy people. No. These are the precious promises God has said He has done for His people. And we're to embrace those, we're to believe those, and to never let them go. In every way, this new covenant is better because Jesus is better. And He makes all things new. He makes all things better. There is no turning back. There is no leaving Him. We must hold fast to Him. Why would we return to an obsolete shadow, copy, or type of the real thing when Jesus has given us Himself and said He would never leave us, never abandon us, and never forsake us? We need to look to Him. We need to look to Him in faith, and we need to continue looking to Him. Look to Jesus and hold fast to Him. Let's pray, and then we're going to look to Jesus. We're going to sing to Jesus, and we're going to look to Him and come to His table. And maybe this is a chance for you to reaffirm your faith internally for yourself. Maybe you've been feeling or acting like your faith is just half there. Well, this would be a good morning to reach and to hold what God has given you to encourage your heart. Let's pray together. Our Father, that is our prayer for every one of us. My prayer for myself, for all of these who've come to worship you. That we would look to you and see who you are and see what you have done. And Lord, as we seek to look to you, would you show favor to us? Would you warm our cold hearts? Would you remind us of what you have done and how true it is? And we ask this and we pray it together in Jesus' name. Amen.